I'm one of those writers who the process for me is often quite agonizing. You know, I don't know where I'm going half the time and I suffer from doubting the whether my project is worthy and you know, I have such high expectations for myself that the process can often be agonizing. But then when it works and when you hit a scene where you think you've nailed it uh, or you, you know, you talk with a reader who's loved it or you, uh, you know, your agent manages to sell the book or, you know, you get on the Washington Post bestseller list or whatever it is. When when you reach readers, when you when you manage to touch people with this thing that was just an idea and and yet you persevered and you managed to create this really complex long uh, story, then it feels like it's all worth it. Welcome to the Drew Perlman Show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting-edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. Okay, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Katrin Schumann, and she was born in Germany and grew up in Brooklyn and London and now lives in Boston and Key West. She's the program coordinator of the Key West Literary Seminar and Workshops. Her latest novel, This Terrible Beauty, has been called luminous and unflinching, unputdownable, which I agree with, unputdownable, and hard to forget. It's a love story about a young woman in 1950s East Germany who is forced to choose between her family and her freedom. It was chosen by She Reads as among the most anticipated women's fiction in 2020. Her debut novel, The Forgotten Hours, is described as gut-wrenching, a brilliant debut with heart-pounding finish. And it was a Washington Post and Amazon Charts bestseller. She's also the author of several nonfiction books. And for the past 10 years, she's been teaching writing most recently at Grub Street and at local prisons throughout Penn, New England. Katrin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is um, this is so I was telling Katrin, um, she is the second writer that has been uh, recommended by my good friend, Erica Forensic, who was on the show a couple years ago and uh, so excited. Erica keeps referring me to these amazing writers and reading their books. So uh, Katrin is another one. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. As I was saying, you know, any excuse for us to talk about our books, our thoughts, our obsessions, our process, <laughs> craft, you name it, whatever, we're up for it. That's that's great. That's great. So, Katrin, um, you were born in Germany and you it, it sounds as though you moved to New York when you were little and then London and and now I, I believe you're living in Key West. Yeah. How is living in so many different places, do you think, shaped your, maybe your personality as well as your writing? Yeah, I think that's really a core question for me. Um, I have always, always seen myself in terms of being an outsider wherever I am. Um, and I think as a little girl, even, I felt that, you know, my parents, um, we're all German and my parents have very strong German accents. And even as a little girl in Brooklyn, I, I sort of knew I was different and I was dressed differently than everybody else. And um, my my family environment was different. Um, and then when I moved to England, 
uh, I was perceived as American uh, because I had an American accent. Um, it, and then additionally complicated by the fact that I was had a very German name and, you know, the English and the Germans, you know, there's still there's still a little bit of, um, uh, you know, people remember the war. And my brother and I had to kind of roll with that a little bit, um, being being uh, tapped as being uh, the, the baddies. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it really actually affected me, you know, made me become who I am today because I was always an observer. I was just always really watching people and trying to assess, you know, what is it that makes somebody comfortable? What, what makes them fit in? What does it mean to feel like you're at home and to be truly sort of in your place? Um, those were questions that I asked myself from the very beginning uh, as a consequence of moving around quite a bit. Mm. And so are, are you now, I know you, you spent time in, in Boston. Are you are you still Boston and Key West or are you now folk? Are you based in Key West or where are you? Well, I'm mostly in Key West now where my husband and I were here about eight months out of the year and uh, we spend the summertime in the Boston area. Um, you know, and that's, we've been doing that for about four years uh, and it suits us very nicely <laughs> to get out of the Boston winters, yeah. to be honest. Um, and then I lucked out. I have this wonderful position here with the Key West Literary Seminar um, which is an annual uh, seminar and workshop program that's been going for 40 years. So it's kind of been great to be able to move to this beautiful, basically tropical island and yet still be connected to a, a, a pretty vibrant literary uh, world. Um, so it's, you know, it's 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 been good. Not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I think I'm going to be joining you in Florida pretty soon in a few months. I think I'm going to need to get out of here. But I'm yeah. I'm I'm in the Boston area right now. But but I'd love to uh to talk to you about your your latest book, This Terrible Beauty. And I know it it actually came out did it come out in 2010 or 2020? 20, 2020. Um I mean, this book it was a long time coming. So uh, and unfortunately, it came out right at the beginning of COVID. Uh, so I didn't get as much of a chance to talk about it in person at events and so on as I did with my first book. Um, and yet this book is so personal. Uh, you know, it's really wrapped up in my own um, family history and my interests that that are um, born out of being uh, German born and and having uh family that ended up on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Um, so I was happy to have this book get a get a chance at life and be able to find its readers. Because this this is a time in, in, in history that I mean, I didn't know much about this post World War Two history. And and it takes place on an island off of Germany that I never even knew existed called. Is it Rügen? Yes. Yeah. And uh, what drew, so so this is post World War II, and and this was a part of Germany that um, eventually the Russians ca yeah. came into the communists, and, and yeah. so so maybe just talk about what drew you to this particular chapter in history. Yeah, so I remember pretty vividly as a little girl in in Brooklyn once writing a letter to um, one of my aunts. And my father said, well, you have to write West Germany on it. And that was the first inkling that I got that there was a West Germany and an East Germany. And I didn't really understand it. Um, and then many decades later, the wall came down and 
my um, family and I went to this island, Lugan, which is in the Baltic, um, it, because my father had been uh, grown up in Berlin and Rügen is just a few hours north of Berlin. And it's sort of like a, you know, vacation resort uh, island, you know, one might say a little bit like Martha's Vineyard or something like that. Um, but it just through accident of fate had ended up on the other side of the Iron Curtain. So it had been part of the um, GDR for, you know, over 40 years. And so I went to that island with my father and uh, and, and the wall had really just come down. So it was all very newly opened up and it was like a time capsule. You know, there, there had been very few improvements. Um, East Germany really struggled economically um, under the, that system of, of um, government. Um, and I was just absolutely captivated. Um, you know, we had, I had been immersed in stories about World War II. And as I mentioned, you know, Earlier in our conversation, I myself and my brother had sort of hit up against a bit of, um, you know, getting a bit of flack for being Germans. So I had thought a lot about the Nazis and 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 um, and the war, but I really hadn't spent much time thinking about what happened to the Germans who ended up finding themselves in East Germany and, through no fault of their own, then had to either embrace or suffer through an entirely new and different system, which did end up rather tragically for them. Um, and so going to Rügen and, and exploring and going to the, the, the graveyard at the little church on the top of the hill that actually features a bit in my story and going to sneaking into one of the fishermen's huts that had belonged to my father's great aunt, you know, those things really connected me on a, on a kind of core level with thinking about the human beings who had actually lived through the experience of having the Russians come and take over their homes. Mm. Um, and that's then what I wanted to pursue in my story. So when you went on this trip with your father to the island, were you, how old were you? I mean, was this something that like festered in your mind for a while or was this something yes. that, okay. Yes, it did. I mean, I, I was kind of, uh, just always as a child, whenever we traveled anywhere, I would find myself immersed in sort of imagining the lives of the people who, whether it was we were at a, at a castle that was derelict, you know, or, or um, wherever it might be. And this was the same sort of experience. I just started to really take an interest in uh, that part of the country and learning more about the history and so on. And then I have to say the book took me a long time to conceive of and to write. It went through quite a few iterations. In initially, it was this kind of sprawling, epic story, you know, that didn't really conform well enough to a novel's expectations. It was just a little too kind of big and unruly. Um, and so it took a while for me to find the backbone of the story and the, the kind of structure of it and actually um, sell it and, and get it published. Mm. Uh, so so I feel like this is the little novel that could, you know, the, <laughs> the, the novel that just in spite of everything ended up making it into the world. And it, it, it's a pretty, um, pretty great, feeling of success, finally having it be out there and connecting with readers. And and people like you, who were the readers that I had in mind, actually, people who really hadn't 
thought that much, of course, about East Germany, because why, you know, why would it come up necessarily, but who could find maybe an entryway into this piece of history and begin to see things that maybe even correlate in their own experiences and their own lives, even if they hadn't thought of it that way before. Absolutely. And it was interesting about being in East Germany and just the, I wonder, I wonder the mood of the people like, as the transition happened post-World War II, was there a sense of optimism before things kind of went maybe a bit darker in East Germany? Yes, there certainly was. And that was something that I hadn't really understood until I started looking into the history in more detail. Um, And what I realized then, and which many um, people might know already, is that the communists and the fascists had been arch enemies before World War II, you know, and yet, ironically, they sort of contain within them the seeds of the same type of, of, of evil in a way, you know, that it's, it's about controlling and inhibiting and, um, and, and, um, the, the people who fall under the sway of either fascism or, um, communism, you know, end up losing their freedoms. Um, but as a consequence of this, um, you know, antipathy between these two parties, when, East Germany fell under the Russians. There were many East Germans who who embraced this actually and were very hopeful because they felt that perhaps even this is a way to to sort of um, make up for the for the terrors that they had visited upon people and the world through, you know, in World War II. And so in a way, it offered a possible redemption um, because it theoretically was supposed to embody the sort of opposite of fascism. So that became a, a, a polarity that I was really interested in exploring. Um, and so in my, with my main character, Bettina, who is pretty apolitical, I mean, she's just a young woman at the end of the war, and she's really seeing the war only through the lens of her own pretty small personal experiences with her own family. Um, her mother and her father both end up dying in the war. Um, she is willing to be hopeful about the future. She wants to build a new Germany and just live a regular life. You know, she she doesn't want to take over the world or do anything particularly dramatic other than live a fulfilled and, and regular kind of life. And I wanted to look at the the hurdles that somebody like that would have to face, the experience of coming to understand what East Germany really meant uh, to her and to her family um, in, in, in reality versus in the abstract. Mm, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the, one of the things that really struck me too, just, just at the outset was just the, the title of the book, this terrible beauty. And I know it came from the Yeats poem Yes, that the all change changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. And I just found that the complexity of the title was, was something that really attracted to me to so many of the characters in your book. And I know you know, and, and people are going to have to check to read this book. What do you, what did you mean when you when you were referring to the ter- what is the terrible beauty? Would you say in your book? Did did you have something in mind or? Yeah. Well, what 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 I, how I would characterize it is um, the the idea of this sort of paradoxical relationship. You know that that we suffer and experience joy. We we strive and we fail. There, something can be so beautiful that it's painful. You know, love can hurt. There's, 
there's inherent in in that phrase, this terrible beauty is this idea of sort of contradiction and yet also connection. And I liked that, uh, I guess, the sort of feeling of tension um, that is inherent in that title. Uh, now, I do have to say that that was not the original title of the book. Um, and we didn't come up with that. I ended up, you know, you may not know, but many authors end up having to change their titles. Um, it's just sort of the way of the world that that the way we conceive of our own books when we're creating them and then the way that they have to be packaged and presented to the world, uh, you know, is, is kind of a shift. Um, and in this case, my editor, we were brainstorming a new name for the book and my editor discovered that I had written that phrase in one of my scenes and she sort of picked it, plucked it out of the entire novel uh, and said, you know, what about this? Let's let's look at this as a, as a possible title. And so I have to say, initially, it seemed so abstract to me that I wasn't 100 percent convinced that it was the right title. But I've grown to love it and I've grown to see that it actually reflects the some of the nuances and the complexity that I'm trying to get at in this story pretty nicely. Mm. Yeah, I, I I found that. And uh, it, it's interesting because I emailed you the the Elizabeth, one of my favorite poets, Elizabeth Bishop, ha had a line that always stood out in my mind from a poem called The Bite, where she talked about awful but cheerful. That's right. And that 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 paradox that that and, and and you know I did I felt it with so many of your characters. You know, I felt like the last third of this book was so intense. There there were just so many intense situations that happen in that yeah. last third of the book. It is it is so well written and just it's one of the most intense right reading experiences I've ever had. Well, I'm really glad to hear that that's that's always um wonderful for an author to 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 hear a reader who feels you know pulled along in that way by the momentum of the story but i'm also really glad that you bring up vanna because you know he is ostensibly the villain in the book you know he he he's a man who you know you might just write off as being kind of pathetic and he starts off as this sort of petty proletarian type of guy you know an accountant um who who becomes kind of twisted and turned by the power that he's able to achieve in this system in which he really flourishes. You know, he's the kind of petty bureaucrat who, who really, um, you know, found their, their way in that system. And yet I always had a little bit of a soft spot for him. <laughs> I just, and funnily enough, I, I, there's a picture of my, my grandfather that I felt sort of, inspired by, I wouldn't say my character is anything like my grandfather, but I, but the picture, this, there's a picture of him where he lo is looking so soulful. Um, and I always thought of that picture when I wrote Vanna. And so it was really important to me to show how an individual can be corrupted by power and by the desperate need to feel useful and important, and yet can still in their hearts be a person who isn't evil. Mm. You know, I'm, I think that's what really draws me to writing is that I don't believe 
our world is black and white. I think there is so much gray. And I wanted in Vanna's character, I wanted to show how somebody could behave so heinously and yet really not be such a bad guy after all. Um, so that's what I was trying to achieve um, with that with that ending. You know, give him give him a little bit more complexity so that as readers we're willing to to look inside, look a little deeper at his motivations. Mm. And just the complexity of yeah, a, a Bettina's character. So, so just to for you know, many of your listeners won't know the story. There's there's this central question of Bettina is basically um, forced to leave her homeland, and and a core question that runs through the book is, what is she going to do about the child that she left behind and her yearning for this child and her yearning for her, the family that she couldn't have and that she lost and her yearning for her homeland. And so in writing this part of the story where she has an opportunity to return and, and you, you know, as a reader, you're sort of on the edge of your seats. I'm, I'm hoping thinking, wow, is she going to find her daughter and will she get her back? Um, as I wrote that, I wasn't sure what I wanted to have happen. And there's the scene where she encounters her former husband, Vanna, again, in a cafe. And it's a really pivotal scene because they, you know, the last time they saw each other, he was uh, incredibly cruel to her and, and sort of ruins her life. And now they see each other again. And I had to rewrite that scene so many times to try to get it right because I wanted to strike the right note. And I wanted to show him as a human being who, because his pride had been hurt and because he, he had loved this woman who wasn't really capable of loving him back, what might that push him to do? And would that define him as a human being? You know, does that then make him an evil person? Uh, and I, and I, found the end of the story finally in my in in that scene i realized in writing that scene that i had achieved what i wanted to achieve when i had the idea for how the story would ultimately end um and how we would come to see that then i wasn't really um all bad as we had kind of grown to believe over the course of the of this narrative hmm. katrine um are there some themes in your writing that you between this terrible beauty, the forgotten hours, do you, do you notice any themes that you sort of come back to again and again? Is there something that you're maybe, maybe revisiting? And your... Yeah, I, I think that there's always at the core of every story that I write, there's the idea of what does a regular person do when they are forced by circumstance out of their comfort zone. Um, in you know, in my first novel, um, The Forgotten Hours, it's a story about two best friends, and one of them accuses her best friend's father of rape. And the question there is, what does this daughter and best friend and young woman do when faced with the uncertainty about what really happened? You know, how how do you navigate a world in which suddenly you're thrown? A wrench in the works, and that's kind of a very narrowly focused story. It's it's contemporary, and it's really really focused on the experience of the main character and how she sees truth and reality, and how she comes to uncover 
what really happened. But I think it shares a lot of DNA with this terrible beauty, which is, of course, historical and has a much bigger canvas. You know, it really looks at at, at bigger topics and themes. Uh, it has more point of view characters um, than the first one. And yet at its core, I'm still asking a very similar question. What does a regular person do this in this case Bettina a young woman at the end of World War II what does she do when you know geopolitics throw a wrench in the works and she has to reassess everything and and make choices that are very difficult and that she might ultimately regret um, and then in the novel that I'm working on right now I'm asking a similar question um, about how do we Basically, you know, how do we as individuals have agency over our own lives and how do we come to the choices um, that we make? And what do we do when we make terrible choices? You know, how do we survive that? Mm -hmm. And so besides being an award winning writer, you're, you also teach writing, including at, a, at you teach at a local prison or you've taught at prisons in, in yes. New England. Yes, I, I did that for a few years. Uh, so. I had always, for some reason, even as quite a young woman, always felt drawn toward the idea of teaching in a prison. I just always felt, I, I knew in my heart that it's important to tell your story. And I felt that, you know, many people who are incarcerated, part of the reason that they ended up in prison is probably because they didn't have an opportunity to to tell the stories that they needed to tell. You know, I mean, that's a very simplified way of saying it, but I'd always been drawn to that. And then when I started writing The Forgotten Hours, um, which is sort of based on something that very loosely I, I experienced, it was really hard for me to write that book. And I thought, you know, it's now or never. Like, I either find the courage to, to do this uh, and and to go into uh, a prison and and teach and see whether uh, I can help people find their stories and find their voice, um, you know, put put my money where my mouth is, kind of kind of thing. And so so I did do that for a while, both women in a women's prison and in a men's prison, um, and it was a humbling experience. Uh, you know, I, I, I ended up moving away from doing that and going back to sort of regular teaching, but it was really, really eye-opening and, and really gratifying for me. Mm. Did you have any, any particular experience that kind of stands out when you were at the, at the prison? Well, I have to say, you know, uh, and it's going to sound kind of narcissistic, but, um, you know, my main takeaway is what it made me feel like how I going through the process of having to be vetted to get into the prison, you know, um, being patted down, having to wear particular items of clothing, having to really kind of uh, de-gender myself, you know, the the the. the potential tension between being a, a woman in a man's prison, you know, uh, how could I relate to these people who have suffered so much when my life has been largely so privileged? I, I feel like I really was able to experience 
um, growth in myself, in understanding myself and seeing how I connect with the world. And it did lead me to feel that I really wanted to share more with people, find ways to to help people more in telling their stories. And so it gave me sort of great energy for my teaching and in particular for helping new writers. Um, and uh, so I think that I would think that was the biggest takeaway. Um, and of course, you know, I was often moved by the stories that were shared um, with me by by the 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 men and women who were in, incarcerated. Mm, that's great. This episode's sponsor is Microbiome Labs. For the last nine years, Microbiome Labs has been committed to advancing understanding of the human microbiome. They're at the helm of innovation, putting new formulations and technology in the hands of healthcare practitioners and patients. Among many other novel innovations, MBL can now help improve the gut-brain connection with their ZenBiome Cope and ZenBiome Sleep products. Maybe it's been a while since you've re-examined your probiotic choices. The science around the microbiome are novel solutions that are coming out every day. Microbiome Labs will be here at the forefront of science, continuing to pioneer health in this space. For more about this strain and other gut microbiome products, just visit microbiomelabs.com. And as a special bonus for the Drew Perlman Show listeners out there, receive 15% off your total order from Microbiome Labs by just using the discount code that is in the show notes. And Katrine, um, if someone, if, if a young writer were to come to you and, you know, say, and tell you, I want, I'm a young writer, you know, what, what should I do? How should I get started? And, and the reason I ask you that is because I think of our mutual friend who's been on the show, Erica Forensic, talked about this whole, this whole concept of her 30 year overnight success. And and just how and how it takes a lot longer. And I I always think also about Joseph Campbell, who um, who wrote about, you know, how how we'd have young writers come to him and be, you know, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. And he would basically tell him, well, just be ready to be reject, basically be rejected for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. And if you're if you're willing to, you know, not have people call you back, if you're willing to and you're willing to put in the work, he's like, you can be a writer, but not if you're expecting it to happen like today. What what might be something you would tell a young writer that comes to you? Well, I would say that uh, you should really only be a writer if, if you are just, if it's a compulsion and you just feel that you can't not be a writer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know that sounds a little um, grim, but the truth is, uh, you know, you're not going to make your fame and fortune likely from it. It's it is going to be many years of hard work. Um, and I'm one of those writers who the process for me is often quite agonizing. You know, I don't know where I'm going half the time and I suffer from doubting the whether my project is worthy. And, you know, I have such high expectations for myself that the process can often be agonizing. But then when it works and when you hit a scene where you think you've nailed it uh, or you, you know, you talk with a reader who's loved it or you, uh, you know, your agent manages to sell the book or, you know, you get on the Washington Post bestseller list or whatever it is. When, when you reach readers, when you, when you manage to touch people with this thing that was just an idea and, and yet you persevered and you managed to create this really 
complex, long uh, story, then it feels like it's all worth it. Uh, but you know, there are there are it's a roller coaster. It's it's absolutely a roller coaster ride, um, and you can hit those highs and then hit lows after it. So it's not like once it's not like now that I've been a best-selling author, everything for me is hunky dory and it's always easy. You know, you have to really be willing to to be in it for the long haul. Hmm. Well said. What are some of the practices that make you feel the most grounded, maybe when you're writing or just, you know, during daily life? Well, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that writers should always be reading. And it's, it's in the process of absorbing other stories that I feel really most kind of relaxed and, uh, therefore receptive to creative ideas. And that can happen while I'm reading or while I'm talking to people. I, I mean, I think as writers, we're fundamentally interested in stories and that is people telling stories. So uh, I do love to to listen to people and hear their stories and I love to read their stories. So I'm, so I'm a big reader. Um, and then of course, I also need time to just sort of shut off and uh, where I'm not necessarily trying to solve a problem that I have in my work. And for that, I'll go to yoga, you know, I'll, I'll walk, I'll run. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll find ways to, to be physically active, um, so that I get myself tired and, uh, and that feels like a great mental, uh, mental relief at times. Mm, excellent. And if you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 30, 40 years or so, what words of wisdom do you think your current self would share with your younger self? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question <laughs> and a difficult one. What would I say? Um, I would say, don't be so hard on yourself. I think I would say, give yourself the grace and the leeway to make some mistakes and to learn and to just make your way. You know, don't be in such a rush. Uh, it's all going to work out all right in the end. <laughs> Beautiful. Has there has there been any thought of turning this terrible beauty into a into a film or because or, it, it did have this big scope that. I, I thought it would be beautiful in a film or a TV series or something. Well, of course, I would love that. Um, but no, there really hasn't been any interest in that yet. And I think um, I do have a film agent and my first book, The Forgotten Hours, has been optioned uh, to be turned into a limited series. And so I talked with my film agent about this terrible beauty. And I, I, I think, uh, truthfully, part of what makes it difficult is that um, any... Uh, World War II related or uh, war related a kind of epic film costs a lot of money to make. Mm -hmm. And they are still made. I mean, we're seeing them, uh, you know, still they're very popular and, and audiences love them, but they're very expensive. And so, uh, you know, you, you never say never, maybe it'll happen. But for now, uh, you know, there are no immediate plans to, to develop it. Okay. It. Okay. Well, hopefully someone listening to this will, uh, will you know, some producer <laughs> will, will give you a call because it would be a great film. I, re I really thought it had just a very cinematic quality to it. Well, I one thing which relates to a question you asked me earlier is that 
for me, setting is incredibly important. And I think it relates to my my own background because I moved around a bit and, you know, I, what do what do I call home, you know, is, is, is a question that I've always had. So I think for me, setting, I really need to be deeply connected to the place where my books are set. Um, and I need and, and they're almost like characters, even in my first book, um, the, the, the place where this tragedy, this crime happens, uh, you know, is very vivid in my imagination. So I think that as a writer, I do tend to focus quite a bit on the environment and the atmosphere and the setting. And of course, in in this terrible beauty, being on an island in the Baltic, you know, there's a lot of uh, beautiful scenery to describe with the chalk cliffs and the ocean and the winds and the, uh, um, the, the sort of feel of being on the edge of the universe almost. Mm. You know, another question that just came to mind, did your father have a chance to read the book or some yes. of your family members? Yes, he did. Um, and it was really wonderful, actually. So he was uh, an early trusted reader and very helpful on 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 some very practical, smaller elements, you know, the types of uh, card games people might have played or, you know, an expression that they might have used or so on. Now, being German and speaking German, I think I have pretty good insight generally. But of course, there are all these, you know, minuscule details that uh, authors need to get right as well. Um, but I was also really gratified that he loved the story uh, and felt that it was a, um, you know, a, a worthwhile exploration of this really complicated piece of history. Um, so, yeah, I was very happy that that uh, that he was able to read it and enjoy it. Now, where can people go if they want to learn more about you, if they want to get your books, if they want to if they just want to get more about you? What, where should they go? Well, I'd love it. I mean, the best place to go is my website, which is simply my name. So katrinschumann.com. And on the website, you can find out more information about both of my books and, and my other work as well. Um, and you can read excerpts of it. And uh, and you can also order through the website, um, either by going to bookshop.org or to Amazon or going into a bookstore. Um, but I would start on the website. You can read a little bit about me and about my projects there if you're interested in getting more information. That's great. And and last question. So you're working on something new right now. How is it? When should we expect to to see this new uh, this new work? Is is it? Uh, are you in the early stages or where where are I'm, you? Yeah, I'm in the thick of it right now. Um, it's a book that's going to that's set in the 1960s in Ibiza, which is an island off of uh, southern Spain. It happens to be where my grandmother uh, moved in the 1950s. And so that's another place where I was really drawn to it because of the the setting. Um, it's an island that was sort of hippie paradise and that now has become kind of the rave uh, center of the of the world. Um, but so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle, in the thick of the story. It's, it's connected. It, it's interwoven with the story of Madame Bovary, which is kind of a tragic story about a young woman who's looking for love. Um, and so I'm not sure when it'll be out. I think it's probably going to be uh, another year or so um, before that hits the shelves. Um, but I'm I'm really looking forward to to that one. I think it's going to be a, a fun read for people. Beautiful. Well, let's let we'll, we're going to let you get back to work. So uh, thank okay. you, thank you so much. This was this was such an honor and a treat. And um, 
you know, we, we enjoyed having you on the show. All right. Thank you so much, Drew. I appreciate getting the opportunity to, to talk about all this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone. 